Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hello there. Welcome to today's program. Um, collaborative problem solving at school. It must be Monday, 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time, because this is what I do every Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We do collaborative problem solving at school, and today we have a rare treat um, I can answer questions today. I mean, we've been so tied up with Anytown High School and with our teachers panel, uh, educators panel, all great stuff um, that it's been hard to sort of find time to answer questions. Um, but today's your day. So I'm going to answer some. I'm going to bring up something that's been in the news, especially in Maine. Um, and then we're going to get to some questions. But um, today's your chance. Got a question you want to get answered? 646-727-2691. That's why we do this program. Trying to make it easy for people to access information about collaborative problem solving. Um, How you doing out there? Boy, there's so many uh, schools that are implementing collaborative problem solving these days. And, um, you know, they run into their rough spots. Um, Not always easy to get everybody on board in terms of the lenses of collaborative problem solving. Once people have them on, they're on, though. Some people, these are not the lenses they've been wearing all along. So new lenses, new lenses are new lenses progressive lenses, as I've been calling them lately. The progressive lenses of collaborative problem solving, uh, the prism through which we view kids' behavioral challenges, lagging skills, demands for those skills, unsolved problems. Um, And then, of course, organizing the effort is really hard. Um, Using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems to identify lagging skills and unsolved problems. Using the Plan B flowchart to figure out what unsolved problems you're going to be working on at first. The rest you're not working on. Making sure that 99.9% of intervention is proactive because 99.9% of unsolved problems are proactive. Excuse me, are predictable. And then getting good at Plan B. Uh, There are bumps in the road at every point along the way. The lenses can be bumpy. Some people struggle with the new lenses. Now, there are some folks who call those people resistors. I just think they're struggling with new lenses. 
organizing the effort can be really hard. Schools are often not organized to deal with the unsolved problems that are related to challenging behavior in a proactive fashion, unfortunately, in still too many places. Most intervention on behavior problems is still 99.9% emergent, occurs in the heat of the moment or immediately thereafter. That's You're not going to get many problems solved that way. Um, and, you know, getting good at plan B is hard and takes some practice, persistence, um, teamwork, Nice to feel like we're going at this as a teaching community rather than every man on his own, every man for himself. Interesting. uh, So, um, you know, but it's worth it. Uh, One of the things that we can always say about schools is that schools are initiative-weary. But this is really worth doing. been in the news in Maine lately, um, the use of restraint and seclusion in Maine's schools, headline from the Bangor, Bangor Daily News, um, use of restraint timeout rooms in Maine's schools being reexamined. Good for you, Maine. Good for you. Um You'll want to read this. Just go to uh, BangorDailyNews.com and you'll uh, see some articles, both about a school, but both about the issue in general. Um, and I'll, uh, I'm going to read you the first part here. For Jude Herb, it was the stuff of nightmares. Her first grade son, this is the headline Augusta, Maine, flushed and screaming, pinned face down to the floor by three adults. Worse. The six-year-old had been restrained that way for 25 minutes when Herb arrived. It's his mom. My first words were, get off him, said Herb. He was so angry, you know, full flight or fight or flight mode. Within a couple of minutes, he was calm enough to stand up, but there was no question that we were going home at that point. The people holding Herb's son down were not bullies or child abusers. They were educators at his public school, and their use of, quote-unquote, therapeutic restraint is allowed by the Maine Department of Education, but those facts didn't allay Herb's fury. For one thing, her son has asthma, and being pinned down could have put his life in danger. For another, this form of restraint was way beyond what she would ever do to him herself. I didn't know this could happen, said Herb, who lives in Scarborough. We all tell our children, don't use your hands, use your words. What kind of message was this sending? See what I mean? got to read this article uh, let me see if there's anything else to read here therapeutic restraint as it's called in the rules is to be carried out by trained staff to prevent students from harming themselves or others and shall involve the least amount of physical contact necessary um, they're starting to question doing this in Maine Deborah Friedman, the Department of Education's Director of Policy and Programs. This process has been a couple of years in the making, she says. We really need to look at these issues more comprehensively. 
Debate around the issue intensified in 2009 when Diane Smith Howard of the Augusta-based Disability Rights Center proposed a bill in the legislature through Senator Justin Alfond, which sought to prohibit prone restraint, which is when a child is held face down with pressure applied to the back. That bill did not move forward, but resulted in a vow from the department to re-examine Chapter 33 and issue administrative letters to schools in 2009 and 2010 that banned the use of any restraint technique that potentially could restrict breathing. That's a start. That's a start. As a department, we don't track complaints, said Friedman. We don't know how many schools are doing restraints and seclusions. Um, the next headline says, there's nothing therapeutic about these techniques. Well, that's exactly right. Um, good for Maine. You know, there's good reasons why the first annual Lives in the Balance Conference on Collaborative Problem Solving is being held in Augusta, Maine on November 14th. Maine is leading the way. The solution begins in Maine is the nickname of the conference. Proof of it, here's a poll question in the Bangor Daily News. Should teachers be allowed to isolate out-of-control students, yes or no? Uh, yes, 85%. No, 14%. It's kind of an interesting question. Here's another question. Should teachers be allowed to restrain out-of-control students, 68% yes, 31% no. Wonder how people would feel if it was their kid being restrained. E easy to think another kid's, another parent's kids should be restrained. Completely different horse of a different color when it's your kid being restrained. Um but Maine is at least starting to ask the hard questions. And, you know, it's when you start asking the hard questions that you start coming up with the hard answers. And the answers are hard. Implementing collaborative problem solving is hard. Isolating out-of-control students, restraining out-of-control students, are things that we do when things are already bad in the heat of the moment. That's when we do that stuff. Often, not always, but often, doing that stuff is a clear sign that what we're doing right now isn't working. If it was working, we wouldn't be isolating and we wouldn't be restraining. The answer is good care. Often I'm asked the question when I'm people are telling me about a behaviorally challenging student, what should I do when what should you do when? What should you do when is not the important question. What should you do before is the important question. There are no great answers to what to do when a kid is already out of control. The big question is whether isolating or restraining 
solves the problems that are setting in motion the student being out of control in the first place? If not, well, your staff are going to be getting a lot of practice restraining and secluding because crisis management begets crisis management. The more crisis management you do, the more crisis management you do. Crisis prevention is what gets you out of the crisis management business, and yet, as I've been saying in my talks lately, it's almost guaranteed that staff in a school have been trained, sometimes rather extensively, in crisis management. How many staff in the school have been trained in crisis prevention? Maine, good for you for starting to look at the hard issues. Good for you. Oh, about that Lives in the Balance first annual conference on collaborative problem solving. Um, it's going to be quite a day. We're going to be giving out, for the first time, recognition awards to different people from different parts of North America who have been doing an incredible job advancing things for kids and families and educators, kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges and their parents and teachers and other caregivers. Um, the recognition award winners have now been notified. They know who they are. Some of them are from pretty far-flung places, Washington, Montana, California. Uh, if they want to come, we're flying them in for the conference so that uh, all the people who are at the conference can show their appreciation for people out there who are taking a stand on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their parents and teachers and other caregivers and doing the right thing. The first step in getting rid of restraint and locked-door seclusion is to start questioning its use. If you start questioning its use and if you start taking a close look at these specific situations in which it's occurring, what you discover is that those situations were almost always highly predictable and therefore could have been dealt with proactively instead of at the worst possible moment, in the heat of the moment. In the heat of the moment, the options are lousy. Then you're tempted to restrain or seclude because the kid's already out of control. And we can't take ourselves out of the mix either. There is research to tell us that if we rewind the tape on the vast majority of episodes in which adults felt that restraint or seclusion was necessary, what you find is an adult using Plan A. The answer to the problem, of course, is to start asking the hard questions, and the answers we find mostly relate to what kind of care we are providing and whether it is truly solving the problems that are precipitating in these challenging episodes and teaching these kids the skills they're lacking. Then the utter futility of restraint and seclusion becomes apparent. 
because restraint doesn't teach skills and restraint doesn't solve problems and neither does locked door seclusion. Good for you, Maine. So then, in part two of this story, in part two of this story, once again, Bangor Daily News, an article, a series of articles, I believe, by uh, let's see, columnist named Christopher Cousins. They're doing a story on a school in Maine. Um, this, the second part, here's how it starts. In her mind, Marissa Corliss usually had a good reason to bolt for the door. And she knows educators at her school had their reasons for physically restraining her. What they didn't understand, she said, was that her outbursts were her way of reaching out for help. Um, Marissa, more and more and more people know that what a kid does when they're looking bad simply communicates to us that the kid doesn't have the skills to do it better. If the kid could do it better, the kid would do it better. Good for you, Maine. First annual Lives in the Balance Conference on Collaborative Problem Solving. November 14th, Bangor, Maine. Shall we turn our attention to some questions? I got a few here. Hi, Dr. Green. I'm a school psychologist who has been using your techniques in my elementary school. I've found some difficulties with students who are so inattentive they can't stay with you long enough to use CPS. They become off task very quickly, become physically restless, and then we lose the flow of the process, and it's next to impossible to get them back on track. Also, students who are nonverbal are proving challenging as well. Any help? Yeah, but let's take them one at a time. Well, should I be, should I be prickly? Can I be prickly briefly? I'm going to be brief, br- briefly prickly. They're not, plan B is not a technique. It's a process but I'm really happy that you sent in your question. I just don't love the word technique. Why don't I love the word technique? Because I find that people drop techniques like a brick when they don't work right away. And plan B is not going to work right away. And we don't want people dropping collaborative problem solving like a brick just because it doesn't work right away. This behaviorally challenging student who we're trying to help has been behaviorally challenging for quite some time. We're not going to fix it overnight. There's no quick fix. Don't throw in a towel. It's not a technique. It's a process. Hang with it. All right, I'm done being prickly. Uh, If a kid is so inattentive that they can't stay with the process long enough, then there's a few different ways I think about that. First of all, if they're too inattentive to stay with plan B for long, which is often in a one-on-one situation, sort of the ideal situation for many kids to engage, especially the inattentive ones, then that probably says something about 
whether this kid's going to be able to be attentive uh, in general under less optimal circumstances. If kids having trouble being attentive under less optimal circumstances, then we probably need to do something about the attention span, not just because he's having trouble doing plan B, but because he's having trouble, period. Plan B occurs under the best of conditions. Makes me wonder what this kid's looking like under less optimal conditions and whether inattention is something that would need to be addressed directly. Now, let's say that's not an option. Sometimes it's not an option for a variety of reasons. Let's say it's not an option. Uh, now what? Well, then, then you're sort of in the position of having to chunk collaborative problem solving, chunk plan B into uh, ma- uh, amounts of time that the kid can actually handle. So you're not going into that plan B with the inattentive kid who can't hang in there for long thinking um, this is going to last a while. You're going in there thinking he may not last very long at all. And you get as much done as you can that day. And maybe you come back to it again the next day. Or you get as much done as you can in those 47 seconds take a little break, come back to it that same day, or you're not so formal about it. A lot of plan Bs can take place while an inattentive kid is focused on something else. Or this isn't really about inattention. Inattention may not best explain why the kid is not hanging in there very long for plan B. Now I don't I don't know this kid you're writing about. So inattention may be exactly what it is, but it could also be language processing and communication. Often that's disguised as inattention. And kids who have language processing and communication issues often do become physically restless when they're in situations in which they don't have the skills to handle the demands that are being placed upon them. Um, So I might entertain other explanations besides inattention that would explain why the kid is having trouble staying with plan B long enough. But there's a lot of other possibilities. Those are just a few. Students who are nonverbal are proving challenging as well. This came up in a talk that I was doing Wednesday night in London, Ontario. Um, Over 600 educators in the London public school system, call it the school boards there, heard about collaborative problem solving on Wednesday and Thursday next week in anticipation of trying to implement this model throughout their system, system system-wide. It's 170 schools. Looks like Maine isn't the only place that is starting to ask the hard questions and 
think about the hard answers. Lots of places are. Can't tell you how gratifying that is. But uh, back to the question. Kids who are nonverbal, the question always comes up, can you do collaborative problem solving with those kids? And if you've heard this before, forgive me, but I'm finding this to be very useful these days, so are a lot of other people. Um, my reference point here is infants. Infants. I know you've heard this before. I'm going to say it anyways. Infants. Do infants have unsolved problems I've been asking lately? Yes, they do. Wet diaper, heat, cold, hunger, thirst, digestion, self-soothing, sleeping away from mom and dad. Infants have unsolved problems, though they do not have the words to tell us about it. Though they do communicate that they are having difficulty with a particular unsolved problem in ways that do not involve words. They're nonverbal, in other words. Do infants have uh, concerns about those unsolved problems? They do. They do. But they can't express those concerns in words. They let us know that they have concerns by crying or throwing up or, you know, what infants do to let us know they're struggling without words. Can you collaborate with an infant? Yes. By being an incredible observer and paying very close attention to the specific conditions in which uh, the infant is distressed or unhappy, trying to figure out what's getting in the infant's way, applying interventions that we believe will help them and paying very close attention to whether our interventions are accomplishing the mission. Infants have unsolved problems. Infants have concerns about those unsolved problems. You can collaborate with an infant. Infants are nonverbal. They're not using words. If you can collaborate with an infant, you can collaborate with a four-year-old who's nonverbal, an eight-year-old who's nonverbal, an 11-year-old who's nonverbal, a 16-year-old who's nonverbal. But the neat thing about that talk I did, and the reason I brought it up is because uh, I had an entire table full of speech and language therapists at this talk on Wednesday night. And I sort of said what I just said and I you know went through my discussion of how we can mm, still communicate with kids who are nonverbal even if they don't have words and an advantage we have over infants is that in nonverbal kids who are of a certain age at least I don't know three four we can start using pictures to communicate yeah pictures to communicate about unsolved problems and concerns about those unsolved problems and potential solutions to those unsolved problems. And we can use those pictures to help nonverbal students develop a vocabulary so that 
They don't need the pictures forever, though it would not be tragic if they did need the pictures forever. And then um, I asked the table filled with speech and language therapists, must have been eight or ten of them, all in one place, all at one table, what do you think of what I just said? And one of them said the most crucial part of all of that is being a really good observer. Exactly right. Being a really good observer is the most crucial part of all of that. Just like you'd want to be with an infant. You'd want to be a really good observer, even with a very verbal kid. Just because a kid is verbal doesn't mean we adults are off the hook for trying to figure out what's going on with the kid, what's getting in the kid's way. So, yes, this is really hard with nonverbal kids. I also find that with nonverbal kids, we have to prioritize even more aggressively. But number one, obviously, as usual, about what unsolved problems um, we're going to be working on, which you always have to prioritize about. but also prioritizing about what words we want to be teaching the student. Because, you know, when a kid is nonverbal, you've got so many priorities for words that you'd like them to be using. Um, you know, uh, animals, you could go that route, goat, pig, cow, people, mom, dad, brother, friend, transportation, Plane, car, truck, boat, tractor. Solving problems. Solving problems. I think I'd start there. Solving problems. I, we, the first vocab, vocabulary we'd want to develop is a problem-solving vocabulary. Uh, a vocabulary for identifying unsolved problems, a vocabulary for identifying concerns about those unsolved problems, and a vocabulary for communicating about potential solutions. There's your top priority, in my opinion. In other words, the pig can wait. The pig can wait. Uh, let's develop a problem-solving vocabulary as quickly as possible. That's where the action's at. All right, another question. That was a good one. Thank you. Let me read through this a little bit. One. Ah. Uh, um another well I've had a few I've had a few along these lines before If I have 28 students in my class do I have to do 20 do I have to do collaborative problem solving with all 28 
I don't know how you do that. How? CPS with all 28 at once? No way. Well, I, you could do full class collaborative problem solving. That's a blast. Uh, full class collaborative problem solving is about as fun as it gets in the collaborative problem solving world. It's, it's a great lesson on true democracy. been fascinated by these um I'll get back to the question in, in a minute but slight digression but it's related I promise been fascinated by these um occupy wall street folks um some people have been less fascinated and I kind of have the feeling our politicians are counting on winter winter to take care of those protests I can hear our politicians chuckling now. This will pass as soon as the temperature drops, and they might be right, but at least for now. There were some Occupy, uh, there have been some Occupy Wall Street folks here in uh, Boston. I didn't get to see them, but I did get to see the ones in the park in London, Ontario, and my first thought on this. Mm, I guess it was, I don't know, 45 degrees Fahrenheit, was, um, I bet they're getting awful cold in them tents. But I, you know, that doesn't diminish the fact that they're making a very important point. The point, you know, people have tried to discredit them, and yes, they've attracted some fringe folks who are saying some things that are not even necessarily representative of what the movement stands for, but I think what the movement stands for is we do not feel like we are being heard, we do not feel like our concerns are being addressed, and we do not feel like the current crop of, I said the word crop, you heard me, the current crop of politicians is up to the task. They're too much about power and posturing and sleight of hand and all that kind of garbage. All the garbage that doesn't lend itself to solving problems. And I've heard some of these folks quoted. They're really concerned about the level of dysfunction among our leaders and concerned that our leaders don't know how to solve problems well enough to get anything done. I've heard them talk about all all they're really worried about is who's going to get elected in four years. Aren't we on the same team? Anyways, you want to teach your kids a lesson on true democracy. Do collaborative problem solving with the entire class. Entire class. Because full-class collaborative problem-solving isn't 50.1% are happy, 49.9% are miserable. Majority rules. That may feel efficient on Monday, but it's not efficient two years from now. When the sands have shifted, the winds have shifted enough so that well, the 50.1% is a little different than it was, and now we're not making any headway at all because we were never really about making sure that everyone's concerns got 
heard and identified and addressed in the first place. You want to teach kids a lesson on true democracy, help them learn how to solve problems together as a group in ways that ensure that the concerns of all parties are identified and heard and legitimized and make sure that the concerns of all parties are addressed by the solution. And if the first solution doesn't get the job done, you keep trying. Um, that's full-class collaborative problem-solving. And there are some problems, how we're treating each other, problems that affect the entire group that do lend themselves to full-group collaborative problem-solving. But I can't still imagine how you would do collaborative problem-solving with all 28 individuals. The time's just not there. No. The ones I'd start with at the beginning of the school year are the frequent flyers. The ones who are most disruptive... I know, I know, I know, no, I'm not going to stick with them. They're not going to be our top priority forever. It's just that if we deal with them well, they'll stop being our top priority over time because we will have done a good job with them. And then we can turn our attention to the kids in the classroom who are not flying frequently into the school discipline program. I'd start with the frequent flyers. You know, if you have a school classroom in which two or three of your kids are flying frequently into the school discipline program, those are the two or three I'd start with. And I'd make sure that I'd carved out at least 15 minutes a day. And you do have to carve this out, otherwise it kind of doesn't happen. But I'd carve out 15 minutes a day to committed to solving problems with individual students. Yes, I know time is the four-letter word in schools these days, but... We've got 15 minutes to get back into the problem-solving business. If we don't put those 15 minutes in, we end up spending a lot more than 15 minutes dealing with behavior problems that never get addressed. Start with the frequent flyers, then move on to the other kids whose problems often don't get addressed because we've spent the whole school year not solving the problems of the kids whose problems were dominating our attention and our energy. Start with the frequent flyers, then move on to the rest. Not collaborative problem solving with all 28 unless you're doing full class collaborative problem solving, but eventually collaborative problem solving for everyone. But, you know, by identifying the students who you're most concerned about, you're organizing the effort, you're becoming systematic about it. That's often the hardest part. Oh, what if half of your class is behaviorally challenging? Um, oh, no, that's a horse of a different color. That means you're going to have to do some things differently. Your expectations for a class when half the class has behavioral challenges, two-thirds of the class has behavioral challenges, 
your expectations for that crew are probably going to need some adjusting because if half of them are behaviorally challenging, that may actually say something about what our expectations are. And it may say something about those expectations being out of whack for a very high percentage of the kids who are walking through that door. That's going to require some modifications in a bunch of different ways. Now full class collaborative problem solving, really doing an analysis of whether it's our expectations that are setting in motion a lot of those behavioral challenges. Remember, challenging behavior occurs when the demands being placed upon a kid or 15 kids outstrips the skills that that kid or those 15 kids need to respond adaptively to those demands. First place I look is at the demands. Maybe that's why we have so many behaviorally challenging kids. We are holding these kids to a standard that is outstripping the skills they have to respond adaptively to those demands. Time to look at our expectations. Time to look at how we're organizing the day. Time to still prioritize who we're going to be doing collaborative problem solving with early on. Time to make sure we got tons of time to be talking about lagging skills and unsolved problems for each kid and tons of time to solve the problems of the challenging ones. I know we've got academics, but as you well know, so long as half the class is behaviorally challenging, we're not going to get much done academically anyhow. Back to our uh, lead story of the day from Maine. If your school is restraining and secluding a lot of kids a lot of the time, that says something about the expectations of the building and about the degree to which the school is being responsive to what's walking in the door. In some ways, that's actually kind of easier because now you're looking at an entire building, not just two or three kids in the building, in, the, in a particular classroom, but whether the building is truly being responsive to what's walking in the door. If not, time to adjust. I know you've got high-stakes testing, and you do need to hold them all to the same standard. Yeah, I got that part. That doesn't mean that the way to do that is by having the bar set too high for a lot of them. The way to do that is to take them one at a time and one building at a time and think about how are we going to set the stage for these kids to start making incremental progress academically, behaviorally, socially with those increments being increments they can handle. It's actually kind of beautiful when you do that as an entire building. It kind of frees people up. What does our building need to be that it's not? Who are these kids and what do they need from us? And are we giving them what they need? 
Are we being responsive to the hand we've been dealt? All good stuff. Uh, next time, well, next week, we've got the um, educators panel on this program. That is always a blast. And um, I don't remember if we have any town high school the week after that. If not, I will be delighted to give you an update on the uh, first annual Lives in the Balance conference on collaborative problem solving. It's in two weeks. Maybe I'll even do the program from there. In the meantime, hope you found today's program to be informative, thought-provoking. Back next week with the Educators Panel. Talk to you then.